I've been looking forward to preaching through the book of Daniel for a while now. And one of the reasons is because of a main theme that we find in this book that I think is especially timely and helpful for us to be thinking about, to know how to think rightly, to make sure it's clear in our minds. Throughout Daniel, from the beginning to the end, we're going to see repeated this idea of government authority, civil authority, kings, rulers. We see whole lists of officials who rule in a way that dishonors God. We've already seen in the first three chapters, first two chapters, today we'll jump into the third, we've already experienced the kind of tyranny that is reticence of this particular period and of this time. In the first chapter in Daniel, what we found was that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had gone against Jerusalem and the nation of Judah and brought the people into exile after he destroyed their entire city. And amongst these exiles were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we're going to see come up time and time again in this book. They're brought into the service of the king. They're trained to become wise men and counselors. But what we find out about this Nebuchadnezzar is that his tyranny is such that if they did not eat the food he gave them and appeared weaker, the chief eunuch in charge of them would have his head lopped off. Right out of the gate we see in the book of Daniel that this is a dictatorship, authoritarian rule. It's actually an absolute monarchy is what it would be. Nebuchadnezzar is not considered a man of God at this point in the story. In the second chapter, which we concluded just last week, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, he had a, a, a statue of, made of multiple parts that we'll find out later will represent kingdoms in succession that follow Babylon. He'll be so concerned about this dream and so convinced that it was important to hear about that he'll actually uh, tell his wise men and his counselors that they need to tell him the interpretation. And not only the interpretation... But in order to prove that they know the interpretation, they need to even tell him the dream itself. I'm not even going to tell you the dream. You have to even come up with that. That way I'll know that what you're telling me is the truth. And he said to these men and even to his guardsmen that they will be killed if they can't do this. Not just one or two, but all of them. Already in these first two chapters, we have seen the bloodthirstiness of Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen his authoritarian rule. And I said to you that I wanted to preach through Daniel, at least in one part, one reason, because they wanted for us to think rightly about civil authorities. Now, I know that we live in a different day than Daniel lived. I know that we lived in a different time. We live under a different kind of institutional uh, reign. But there are some things here I think that Christians would do very well to consider afresh. I really love you guys, and I pray for you. And I ask the Lord all the time as I'm preparing sermons, God, please help me preach in a way that is true, clear, and helpful. I, I appeal to the Lord on those three things on repeat. God, help me be true, clear, and helpful. I was alerted this last week as I was preparing for this sermon uh, that I, I preached on Daniel chapter 3 not long ago. I quickly pulled up my notes and saw that the last time I preached through Daniel 3 was exactly one year ago this weekend. And I looked at it, I was like, oh man, that's crazy. Oh no, am I just going to preach the repeat sermon from that one? And I compared the notes, I was like, oh no, this is a totally different sermon. (laughs) 
This is the way that the word of the Lord speaks. We can read it time and time again. We could just preach through the same books of the Bible on repeat and be served afresh year in and year out. We praise the Lord for that. This morning, I want to go ahead and introduce this chapter to you by reading the first 12 verses. Then I'm going to pray, and we're going to go back through those 12 verses. That's just going to get us kind of halfway through the the crux of this story. And then next week, we'll pick up where we left off. If you have your Bibles with you, I think it'll be helpful for you to follow along. So go to Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'll read aloud, pray, and then we'll go back in. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, horn, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, horn, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are reading through I'm preaching through a historical account. This happened. There was a king named Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon. There were wicked Chaldeans who maliciously accused Jews. There were three men counted here in this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of your people who were put in this position and who would not bow. God, I pray that we would learn from it today. I pray that we would we'd make the necessary bridges between their time and ours, that we would think rightly about this story so that we'd be served by it in such a way that it would lead us to glorify you, worship you greater, love you more, and that it would be for our great benefit. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So, a few things. We see here that Nebuchadnezzar commissions the building of a statue. It says it's 60 cubits. This is 90 feet tall. This is an enormous statue. And while it wouldn't break any records in our day, it's an ambitious project nonetheless. That's like nine-story tall building. That's basically what this is. We don't know exactly the shape or the form of it. Some think it's kind of like a totem pole because of how, sh- how narrow it is. Others think that the counting of the, hu- the height is probably more like that of the Statue of Liberty, where if you were to Google the height of the Statue of Liberty, the first number that pops up includes the base, which is almost half the height of the entire statue itself. It's just part of the way that they thought about the entire structure. But this is a big, big project constructed on the plains of Dura, a place we don't know for certain exactly where this is. It's probably outside of the city because it's separated from where the people were. They wouldn't have seen it built until the day of this dedication. We also notice here that the treasurers, justices, counselors, governors, prefects, satraps, this whole list that's repeated multiple times shows up. It's a bit of a kind of a mouthful to say on repeat. This is the way that ancient texts read. They kind of give you the details, oftentimes on repeat. But what we can remember from this is that this is quite the large and robust organization of the Babylonian government. There's a lot of people at play. There are a lot of layers to this government and people with distinctive roles who serve under King Nebuchadnezzar. That'll be repeated multiple times. I want you to notice here also that we don't know exactly what this image represents. We can only guess. Some scholars and biblical commentators have thought that perhaps the image may represent the chief god of the Babylonians, Marduk or Bel, some of their chief gods. But most seem to agree that it is incredibly likely to expect that the building of the statue was motivated by the dream in the previous chapter. You might remember that dream we discovered last week, that there was a statue of multiple parts in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, and the the top of it was a head of gold that was identified as Nebuchadnezzar himself. The very next thing we read is this statue being built. So it seems very likely that this is to represent Nebuchadnezzar, that basically he goes, hey, that dream was a pretty good idea. In fact, I'm going to do that right out here so all of my people can see how amazing I am and not forget my rule and reign when all the other nations come after me. Nothing explicitly wicked has yet been said about the statue. But the discerning person would not be surprised at what comes next. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Ribbon-cutting ceremony, not surprising that the elites would show up. We don't know how big the crowd is, but this number listed, the, the names listed, will make us seem that, think that this is a large group, including all the musicians and maybe their servants and those who come just to observe what's happening, perhaps from a distance. This is a large group of people. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And here it is. True motivation for this project. 
Nebuchadnezzar intends to use this event as a test of loyalty of his most influential subjects. But rather than a mere pledge of allegiance to the king, or perhaps even an admission that they should serve for the good of the nation, this king has ordered a worship service, complete with music and corporate veneration. I just want to pause for a moment and draw something out, something that we're going to see much more clearly in future weeks. But I don't want to miss it here. I want you to consider with me the limits of civil authority. This king makes a command, and he makes it through this herald, and the herald just stands up there and proclaims what the king told him to do. But no king in all of human history ever has had or will have the authority to make this kind of demand. None. Ever. This is absolutely outside of the bounds of right rule. Much more will be said in upcoming weeks. But you see this here so you kind of get the groundwork of what's about to happen. God has certainly provided civil authorities to serve on this earth for our benefit. They are bestowed with genuine, real authority. And you and I are commanded by God to submit to that authority. But we may not be rebels without a cause. There's no such thing as Christian anarchy. We are a people who honor the rule of God and the command that he's given and the leadership that he has set up in the civil realm. However, kings do not have unlimited authority. There is a limit to what a king may demand. And here, Nebuchadnezzar has stepped all the way outside of the bounds of that authority. In fact, it can be said that the biblical model for what a king ought to do can be summarized in two things. They are not only offered these opportunities, but they are required. The civil magistrate is required by God to do these two things, summarized in 1 Peter 2.14. To punish those who do evil... And to praise those who do good. To punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And brothers and sisters, that is it. The king may not make demands apart from these two areas. He has been given the sword by God to execute on these two matters. Punish evil and praise good. But who determines what is evil and what is good? That has been offered to God alone. No king may tell you this is evil, this is good, unless God has first decreed it. Nebuchadnezzar essentially is standing before his people and through his media, I mean uh, herald, will tell all of the people that they must bow. And to not do so would be evil, but to do so would be good. He has absolutely no authority to determine what is good and what is evil. In fact, Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who trade good for evil and evil for good. It happens all the time. You and I live in a day where our emperor, the people who are seated in authority in our day, think that they may determine what is good and evil, and they may not. 
no matter what a civil authority says in any era of any time, they must comply with what their king of kings has demanded. There's so much more that can be said about this, but we cannot lose ground here. This has been the basis for much of our arguments against the current American governmental system in this last year. They do not have the authority to tell you what vaccines to take. They don't. They don't have the authority under God to tell you to wear a mask or to not gather with more than two or three people in your home or to not worship your God according to his word. They do not have the authority. King Nebuchadnezzar, here in this bold, arrogant demand, symbolizes, represents for us what we see in earthly kings throughout the ages. They seize on their control and they aim to do wicked things with it. Much more to be said about this in future weeks. But I want you to consider what was demanded here in light of Nebuchadnezzar's statement about God in the previous chapter. Nebuchadnezzar is an ignorant. Nebuchadnezzar can't go, I never heard of any God who, who was over me. I, I, I never knew you should not worship other gods. I, I, I had no idea there's another God out there. Not true. I want you guys to turn to chapter 2, verse 47, if you have your Bibles with you. Just look back over there. It might be just one page to the left. Daniel interprets the dream, tells Nebuchadnezzar what God told him to say, and Nebuchadnezzar responds in this way. This is actually really fascinating. He, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. Your God is a God of gods. He is a Lord of kings like, like me. Master, ruler, I am to be a servant to him. So what do we do with this? So soon, Nebuchadnezzar, after making this kind of statement, we only have a half a chapter. There's a principle here. Be very skeptical of momentary public displays of faith. Be very skeptical of momentary public displays of faith. This happens all the time in our world. It happens, it happens in non-political uh, realms, too. Uh, when an actor or, a, or an athlete or a musician uh, will make some public kind of statement about God. And Christians are so quick to rally to that and prop this person up as the new face of evangelicalism. And a, a, a star can score the winning shot. And in an interview afterwards, he goes, I just thank God that I was able to be there for this moment. And somehow, the world around that person now lets that person be the chief representative of Christianity and all that God says is good and right and holy in the world, and it ought not be. I know you've seen and observed this before. It's not helpful. It's not right. But kings, emperors, governors are chiefly politicians. They know what to say to gain the approval of their constituents and to garner votes and supports from those they lead. They know how to do that. In addition, it is very possible for a person to experience a sincere yet fleeting lapse in their usual ways 
that can be mistaken for lasting change of a newly regenerate heart. In other words, it is possible for a person to have a moment where they do make a sincere statement like Nebuchadnezzar. He could have been sincere in saying, wow, I'm so grateful now I know my dream. He's a God of gods, a Lord of kings. But that statement had no real substance. And brothers and sisters, we have, we have plenty of biblical examples of this. You might remember Pharaoh back in the days of the Exodus when the Israelites were kept in bondage by him for years and they were being slaughtered, their babies being murdered by this wicked king and God rescues his people out of Egypt. You might remember how he did that? Through ten plagues. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and his own wickedness and pride. Pharaoh refused to let the people go no matter what continued to happen. And after the eighth plague, which was the plague of locusts, something interesting happens to Pharaoh. He has this momentary lapse of his previous way of of dealing with the Israelites. And this is what it says, what Pharaoh says in Exodus 10. Right after that eighth of what will be ten plagues, he says, after hastily calling in Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin." Please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. That's what Pharaoh said. You might remember King Saul, the first king over Israel. After David would be anointed to be the king that would take over Saul's wicked rule, Saul sought to kill David. He went to hunt down this one who would become the next king. And multiple times he tried to kill even even the the pure, submissive, following David. There was one occasion where Saul, while he was in a campaign to go hunt down and kill, who would be the most loyal man in his army, David. Saul finds himself in a cave, falls asleep. David comes along and his his, his, uh, partners with him are like, kill him. The Lord's delivered him into your hands. David won't because he goes, this is not the way I'm supposed to win. This is not the way that God's going to do this. And he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Those who are familiar with the story might remember. When Saul realizes what had happened, and David from the mouth of the cave holds up the corner of the robe, and Saul realizes, oh my goodness, the mercy that was extended by this David. This is what Saul says. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. One chapter later, Saul sets to kill David again. Several verses after Pharaoh's repentance, he wickedly tries to resist God again and refuses to let the people go. But if either of these seemingly repentant despots were American politicians, I can guarantee you that their approval rating amongst evangelical voters would go up. But we ought to remember that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. People can be quite fickle. We all know this. And so can civil authorities. For years, politicians have made public overtures trying to convince their voter base that they're Christian. I want you to consider the last 30 years of U.S. presidents. The older President Bush professed to be Episcopalian, while his son claimed to be Methodist. Both Bill and Hillary Clinton claimed to be Baptists. 
both President Obama and President Trump claim to be non-denominational Christians. The man who currently sits in the White House, Joe Biden, professes to be Catholic. Of the 535 people in Congress today, 468 of them claim to be followers of Christ. That's 9 out of 10 of a combined group of Democrats and Republicans. And yet many, if not most, of the political elites in our country have made it to the top by climbing over a pile of murdered babies. They celebrate sexual perversion and even hail it as a civic virtue or a moral good. While they get richer and everyone else loses more and more liberty, they have proven time and time again that they have no intention of honoring Christ in Washington. And yet, many of them have been repeatedly voted into office by evangelical Christians who believe that those congressmen and women deserve their votes because they own a Bible or claim to be pro-life. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. How many times does someone need to lie to you before you doubt them? Christians need to wake up to these shenanigans. It is not ungodly for us to be skeptical of these kinds of spurious and ungrounded religious claims. The whole Bible is filled with this. Even in the New Testament, we are warned time and time again, there will be people, even teachers among you, who will profess one thing and clearly live according to another. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You and I would be wise to watch the lives and practice of civil authorities carefully and to demand that they do more than just offer lip service in regards to their professed faith. Can you imagine what kind of world we would live in today? If in the past decades, Christians in our country refused to vote for unethical and corrupt politicians and demanded that those who claim to be Christian act like it, can you imagine what kind of world we'd be in now? Oh, you're a Christian. Prove it. Like, why not one Christian in the crowd when someone goes, I just want you to know, here's all the platforms I'm going to stand on, and I also, I honor Jesus. Prove it. Guys, that's not wrong. Would you not do the same for a pastor? Hey, guys, just trust me. I'm godly. I got this whole thing. I love Jesus. So just do, do, follow my lead here. Even though he previously acknowledged the greatness of the one true God, King Nebuchadnezzar here makes this horrendous demand. But that's not the worst of it. Look at the next verse. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So what's the punishment for noncompliance? Burning alive. Burning alive. Some commentators have pointed out that large smelters would undoubtedly have been readily available near this construction project in order to cast the gold and build it. That was likely what's being threatened. You know those smelters? That's where you're going. But what if the conscience-stricken Babylonians, what if those who were like, ah, I'm just not so sure this is a great idea? 
Too bad. They even mentioned many nations just before this. All, all the peoples and the nations. Why did it say that? Did you see that? Why? Because this is all of the different people, the officials, these, these uh, satraps and counselors and wise men. They were all comprised of the nations that Babylon had captured or conquered. Some of them may have been just ambassadors of still surviving nations around them. They were there on the behalf of their nations to, to, to form the official delegation that surrounds the king of Babylon. All sorts of people from different nations that certainly had all kinds of different gods, maybe even different kings. But no exemptions here are mentioned. This is not a suggestion by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a demand and a wicked one. Nebuchadnezzar intends to weed out any dissenters, to consolidate his power by demanding that they worship his God. And again, like I said, maybe even worship him if that's what the idol is supposed to be. Tyranny only exists when subjects fear their king. Isn't it kind of weird? You see this? He says, hey, bow down to this thing. Well, don't you think the influence of a king should have some weight? Clearly, he throws the threat in before he even lets them respond. Why? Because like a flame robbed of oxygen, the tyrant who has not feared will quickly be snuffed out. Authoritarian rulers cannot tolerate noncompliance. Those who resist must be made an example of. I've heard lots of conversation about believers right here and now about vaccines and mask mandates and all kinds of things regarding COVID uh, that our government is enforcing upon other people. You guys are well aware of all this, and this is surprising to hear about. And I've heard some Christians go, this is tyranny. Others go, this ain't tyranny. Yes, it is. What is? Seriously. The more the demands come down, the higher the charge against those who won't comply, the more like this it looks. I wonder what the people in the crowd thought when they first heard this. We don't know. But we know what they did. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, horn, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, what did they do? Fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now I know, as well as you do, that the very next verse is going to call out three who didn't. But the word all here is significant. How many complied? The masses. They just fell on their face. Everyone complied. No one stands against the king. No one goes, whoa, 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 hey, hold on, hold on. Hey, we're the, we're the close guy. A king, this is a bad idea. This is not the way we want this to go. There's, there's better ways to rule. Let's help you. What about, what about uh, those who don't? Don't follow this God. What about the... Nope. Everyone complies. This is the way it so often goes. Was this not... Is this not what we see around us now? I don't know about you. I'm a little ashamed to admit just how blindsided I was by how quick Americans complied with the types of things that came down this last year. If you would ask me back prior to 2018, prior to 2019, you know, back before the world got crazy, if you were to ask me back in 2019, like, Rich, do you think that Americans would ever accept the government telling you you may not meet together in a Bible study in your house. 
You may not worship your God in a gathering. You may not share communion with one another. You dare not sing praises to God on Sunday with fellow Christians. I would have been like, I mean, maybe in some movie. Certainly not in America. I, I, I was wrong. I was wrong. It, was, it not, was it not startling to see the levels of compliance? I, that's what we see here. Just compliance. Fall down and they worship the golden image. Look at how little their gods were in their eyes. Sure, I'll worship your God. Sure, I'll, I, don't, I don't know. My God's not that powerful. I'll fall before yours. And they fell to the ground. And we might imagine that there might have been at least a few in the crowd who were, uh, felt morally concerned, maybe even convictionally opposed to the idea, just not sure what to do. But for one reason or another, they still fell down on their face. Why? Why would they fall on their face anyway if there was anyone in this crowd who thought this might not be the best idea? Fear of death. That's why. I said before, we don't get to see in this event what the people would have done if the threat wasn't given, right? If it was just, hey, please bow. We don't get to know what the throngs of people would have done. Would some have stayed standing and been like, ah, this is a little weird. I'm not so sure about this. We don't know. All we know is the threat accompanied the command and the people fell on their faces like cowards. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate how much your non-Christian neighbors fear death. Do not underestimate that. The non-believers around us are terrified of death. And they should be. If you're not a believer today, you need to hear this. If you're not a believer today, you should be terrified of death. Because if you die in your sins, apart from Christ... This day will have been the closest to heaven that you will ever get. Because you are under the judgment of Almighty God for your sins. And the proof in the pudding is that death reigns over all mankind. Every man will die. Why? Because all sinned. And the Bible tells us that the wage of sin is death. And it will come for you too. And we don't know when. That is worthy of your fear. But God has done a great and mighty work. He sent his perfect son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we should have lived. And at the end of that ministry and life, he went to the cross to be murdered by his opponents. To be spat upon and mocked. And he bore the weight and the guilt of all of our sins that the punishment of those sins would fall upon him. That God punished the sins of all who will ever believe in Jesus Christ. And if we believe in him, we may have eternal life. This is the way it says it in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Because Jesus came out of the ground, defeated death. And anyone who repents of sin and turns in faith to him can have this said true of them. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hear that. 
If you are not a believer today, you are in lifelong slavery. And what are the chains that hold you? The fear of death. But in Christ Jesus, if you submit to him, make him your king of kings and lord of lords, acknowledge his right and due position in that place. And you can be set free. And no longer have the fear of death like that. Believers wonder sometimes, like, oh, well, I'm still kind of afraid of death. Like, if, you were to, if you were to kind of stand next to a cliff and someone were to bump behind you, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that, what is that? Why is it that believers today might still have some experiences of the fear of death? Because the flesh is still upon you. You're still here. You're still in the flesh. That's why there's a fear of death in you. And until you actually die physically, that flesh is destroyed and all that's left of you is spirit and life, that fear will be something you're going to have to battle. In other words, if there was a cliff in heaven and someone would bump you and you were to fall off, would you be hurt? Would you die again? The second death has no power over you. It's a vestige of our sinful lives. If you have not repented of sin and turned to faith to Jesus, you need to do that. And join us. Join us in what we can have. A courage in the face of death. Because Jesus has defeated it once and for all. I submit to you that this realization should compel us to at least three things. Follow me on these. This should stoke compassion in our hearts for the unbeliever. If you look around you and you just watch people shudder in their home and scared to death of death, we ought to understand that. Not mock that, not belittle that. Well, of course they're afraid. If they die, they're going to hell. God is not for them. Today, in their unbelief, you and I should have compassion in our hearts. They're slaves to fear. They're, they're in bondage to this fear. In great love, we should, when we see, using my four-year-old's words here, see the world freaking out, that's all she says. We ought to step in with great compassion and love and Goodness, of course you're freaking out. Of course you're concerned about your lives and your livelihood and what might happen to you when you die. You should. But you can be released from that fear. The second thing, it should prompt our rescue efforts. Evangelism. That we should seek to set them free by the proclamation of truth. Jesus said in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We want to proclaim that truth to the lost world. We want to see more and more people come out of this fear of death. No longer enslaved to it. And third, Christians, we must act courageously. If we don't stand up and show courage when times are dark, who will? No one in this world has more reason to be courageous in the face of fear than Christians. Nobody. Nobody, nobody should. If somebody is to climb out of that foxhole and go protect the wounded people on the battlefield, it should be the Christian. If somebody is to stand when everyone else bows, it should be the Christian. The Christians ought not wait. Man, I hope some atheist comes in and saves us from these crazy worldly people. No. Of course, no, no Christian would say that, right? But we oftentimes go like, well, I hope somebody knows something about this thing that's going on. Believers, we are the ones who are to show courage. You might be the only Christian in your workplace. And there may be times, and, and wisdom must prevail on when exactly those times come, but you may be called upon to be the one, the one singular person acting with courage. 
When in the board meeting, somebody suggests that as a group, you celebrate godless gay pride. To be, I don't think that's a good idea. You may be called upon to do that. And not to wait for the next person to be courageous, but to lead that. Christians ought never sit back and waiting for this worldly Savior. We have one, and we are to operate as disciples of that Savior in the eyes of the world. If God is for us, who can be against us? We should be at the front, modeling our trust in God whenever the need arises. And when we do this, the world will take notice. One way or the other, they will notice. And that's exactly what happened when the three men stand strong in this story. Look at verses 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys disgust me. There's a little bit of a reminder here. Every once in a while when we're praying for the meal at dinner time, one of the, the younger ones will be like, ah, I, saw, I saw Naomi. She didn't have her eyes closed during the prayer. These guys literally tattle. That's what they do, right? That's literally what they do. The three Hebrews stand alone, and they are, did you see the word there? Maliciously accused maliciously. There's nothing good-natured in their accusation. There's no virtue in it. It's not out of a reluctant yet loyal commitment to the party that these Chaldeans somberly address their dissenters in their midst. Hey, I, I, I noticed you didn't bow. I, I would like to help rationalize with you and help, help teach you why it's so important to our king. And I, Please, just follow what the law is, right? Nothing like that. They knew what they were doing, and they were thrilled. The world hates God's people. The world hates God's people. Always has. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you and I set our hearts and minds to submit to and obey God, no matter what, the world will hate us for it. In fact, they will be genuinely confused as to how we will not fear what they fear. Huh, did, you, did you not hear about the, the fire? Did you, did, you, did you miss that part? And that confusion, as we've seen around us, often leads to rage. Why will you not panic with me? Fury. It will infuriate civil leaders in our world that they cannot control us with fear. It's infuriating. And so, these men run to Nebuchadnezzar and tattle. And that's what you and I ought to expect. We ought not expect applause from the world when we stand for what God calls righteous. They applaud their own. Oh, it's so brave to wear that dress at the Oscars. 
oh, it's so brave to, to say that you have come out of the closet and you, you love perversion of sexuality. Oh, that's so, that's not brave. The world applauds you. There's no courage needed for that. If you grew up when I did, you grew up in a world where there were movies all the time because we have a vestige of Christianity that still sticks in our culture in America. A vestige of it. And it invades even the movies they don't want it to invade. So we see Messiah figures in movies all the time. You ever notice this in stories of our day? It is not uncommon. It's super typical for in a movie at some point for the hero of the movie to have to stand alone on doing what's right. Seen this? Happens all the time. And the camera zooms in. And you hear the cries of the crowd and and the music swells. And the audience in the theater watching the movie is swelled with, with emotion. Yes, they're standing strong to do what's right in the face of evil. But that's not what it feels like in the moment. No music will play when you stand alone in your board meeting. No one will celebrate that in that circle. You will likely not only stand alone but you will be maliciously accused by those who hate your stance. Expect irrational hatred and expect to stand alone. Now next week we're going to pick up on this story from right at this point and see what happens when Nebuchadnezzar finds out. What can we learn from this story so far? I want to wrap with just two thoughts that I hope will be helpful for you that are built on what we've already said. One following the next. First, as imitable men, men worthy of imitating, we should be like these guys. It must be noted that even though we haven't gotten to that part of the passage, who's the hero of this story? Jesus. Jesus is the hero of this story, as we're going to see in this next week. He's the hero of all the stories. Every story of faithfulness in all of history, Jesus is the hero. Because a person who has faith in something that doesn't exist, something that's not true, is a fool, not one to be imitated. These brothers of our ancient past had faith in Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. We should be like these guys. And what did they have? First, a resolve to resist ungodly demands. I said before, you and I need to know the limits of a king's authority so it'll serve us well when the day comes. We won't go, oh no, did God command me to bow because the king said it? No, he did not. No, he did not. God never commands you to bow to false gods. He actually prohibits that, right? We're to know this. We're to live accordingly. It is not good for us to obey wicked orders. It is not good for others when we roll over when ungodly kings build an ever-increasing list of demands, it is not good for our nation. Love for neighbor should compel us to exercise God-given courage to his glory first and for the benefit of those around us. Proverbs 25, 26 says this. Log this one. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. These men resolved to resist ungodly demands. How do we know they resolved? Because they proved it. They just did it right here. They, 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 didn't, they didn't bow. They're about to stand before the king and answer for it. And we're going to see their demeanor, their dignity, their commitment, their resolve. You and I need to be the kind of people that are resolved. That if a day like this were to ever come, that we would stand in a way that honors our Lord. And second, which is an extension of this, 
we must prepare ourselves for moments just like these. Prepare ourselves to stand courageously. I want you to think about this for a moment. When I say prepare yourself, what comes to mind? If you are not resisting sin in your life and submitting to King Jesus in every area, you are not going to be ready for these life-threatening moments. If you are not preparing your heart for this now, when your life is not on the line, how can you expect to be ready when things really heat up? If you have more regular worldly influence coming into your mind and in your life in any given day than truth, Bible, prayer, fellowship, confession, what do you think is going to happen when things get hot? In other words, if on any given day there's far more world being poured into you than Christ, what do you think is going to come out when pressure comes upon you? Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to prepare ourselves for these moments long before they come by pursuing holiness. It is so often that people come and ask uh, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, and as a pastor, I get to be at the forefront of a lot of that. Hey, can I, I just need counsel on something, a very difficult decision. I'm trying to discern right and wrong here so I honor God. What should I go do? Listen, prepare yourself now to make the right decision then. Discernment is a muscle. You need to be strengthening it now so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? How are you going to know? Exercising your discernment right now, today. This is so practical and sometimes so simple that we think there's some giant, big, huge, looming something that we must attain in order for us to be prepared to stand like these guys stood. But it's simple. Sisters, if you're not daily resisting sin in your life by submitting to your husbands, how can you expect to resist tyranny and to submit to God in that day? Brothers, if you are not daily resisting sin in your life by leading your family, in the worship of God, how will you expect that you will resist wicked demands and lead others to honor God in that day? Practice now what you will need to do then. We need to practice this discernment. Hold each other to this. If anyone is harboring secret sin, you need to expose it. You need to get it out. You need to pursue maximal holiness. That's how we train and prepare for that day where this might matter. These brothers already showed their resolve earlier in chapter 1 when they didn't want to take the foods, food from the king. They were concerned that it would violate their conscience. Remember when we talked about that? And they stood with Daniel. Daniel spoke, but they were with him. They were like, listen, we can't be like the rest of the people around us. In fact, they had resolved with their brother Daniel as we should now. You and I need to expose sin we need to confess it. We need to pummel it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're going to need to draw on the love of the Father in those moments, maybe more than we even do today. You and I are going to need a clean house. Think with a clear mind. Get rid of whatever worldly influence is there. So we think with the mind of Christ. I think, I think that there are many conservative Americans today 
who are like sheep without a shepherd right now. Do you sense that like I do? They're like, they look around and they take stock of what's happening in our country and they know something's wrong and they feel the urge to resist. But because they are not looking first to God, have not submitted their lives to King Jesus, they don't have an objective, principled reason to resist today. And they, like the world around them, have a very natural fear of death. Don't overlook the potential for this moment to be one in which believers provide an amazing gospel witness. We are the ones designed to lead the charge. And that may not look like great grand overtures in front of thousands. It may be you and a couple of neighbors. It may be you and your household. Maybe you and the the boardroom meeting of the other six people who are marching one direction when God would say to march the other. And you're going to have to stand strong. Whether that day is tomorrow or it's 10 years from now, we must be a people who commit to pursue maximal holiness, resolve to do what is right, understand the authority of God in our lives so that when the day would come, we are prepared to execute in a way that pleases him no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge no man can know what is coming ahead of us. Uh, Many have deigned to make that kind of prophecy or prediction. Uh, And Lord, we trust you and your word, not uh, the thoughts of men. So we don't know if next year is better or worse for us. It seems likely that we can uh, utilize prudence and wisdom to expect that it's aiming in a very hostile trajectory for believers. But God, help us to think with your mind about these things. Teach us through the example of brothers like this, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Help us to think like these brothers, like Daniel. Help us to be prepared and resolved. Help us to be the kind of people that in our daily life with other Christians, we want more truth than lies. We reject the worldly influences on our lives. God, I pray that each household here would clean house, that we would acknowledge that sin and worldliness can invade our life like mosquitoes on a camping trip in a tent. Every time we open the door, more world comes in and needs to be dealt with. Father, help us to have the resolve to deal.